I watch reminds me of a, of a speech I heard Bill Curry give for you Georgia people. He coached Georgia Tech, by the way, if you didn't know that, in Atlanta. And uh, he said uh, he, he was up uh, at, in, a, in a worship service with one of his friends, and the preacher got up and took his watch off and laid it down, and his friend who'd never been to church much elbowed Curry in the, in the side and said, what does that mean? And Curry says, nothing. <laughs> this morning's passage is an, is, is an extremely difficult one to follow and even more difficult to preach. So, listen up. Let us pray. Grant us, O God, ears to hear and deliver to us a new understanding of this word. And in hearing it, may we so be and do it. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we looked at two of the three parables in the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel, those three famous parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and what we've come to know as the prodigal son, the parable of the lost sons. Immediately following that is this morning's passage, which comes from the 16th chapter of Luke. Luke is always dealing with issues of money, responsibility, justice, poor people, rich people. So true in today's text. From verses 1 through 13, may God give us this new word. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager, or steward, said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm, I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I'll do it so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master, the master, the rich landowner, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, same word, wisely or prudently. And then, and then it says, Jesus says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light, disciples and Christians. And then Luke has Jesus continue, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is done, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Let me start with a disclaimer. This is not my favorite parable. In fact, it's my least favorite parable of all. And when I started doing research on what I had said before in preaching it over the past 35 years or so, I found out I'd only preached it once. And after reading it again, I remembered why. Two reasons. It probably is the most complicated and and hard to understand parable of all of them with no real punchline, no clear and simple answer that that the preacher can give you as to what it means. You cannot find in this parable the answer to the heavenly SAT test. The second reason I'll tell you about later. Here's the thing with Jesus' parables. As to the confusing part, They're often confusing. Not everybody gets them. Even the disciples had to question what they mean. And so for us, how does one look at a Picasso and see in it the beauty there unless one has done the work to understand the work Picasso does? How does one understand an opera, a a Paganini opera, if one doesn't understand the process of operatic classical music. I don't like opera, personally. I mean, I like the arias and some of the you know, choruses, but I just don't get it because I haven't spent time studying it. Parables for Jesus are just the same. It takes work and time and effort to understand what they mean, if in fact we can. If nothing else, Jesus' parables reveal to us Jesus' genius to be able to pen or voice a parable at just the right moment in the face of some questioning by the religious leaders, often the case, the self-righteous religious leaders, Jesus comes up with the parable. The genius of being able to come up with those parables should not be lost on us. But this one, I don't know. Take this first complication. There was a rich landowner who heard that his steward, his manager, had been dishonest. He was cooking the books, so he called him in and fired him and said that he wanted an authorized, certified audit. Knowing he couldn't get an honest job, the manager or steward didn't want to beg, and so he cut a deal with the tenant farmers. They were tenant farmers. I'll make that case in a second. And, and, 
and he didn't want to be jobless, and so he made a deal with him and said, okay, to the, to the person with a thousand, no, excuse me, yeah, a thousand, that's not right, yeah, a thousand gallons of olive oil owed, he said, cut it in half. And to the, to the person with 900 bushels of wheat, he said, cut it by 20%. Nobody knows why those percentages were given. It's arbitrary, or there was exactly the amount of money that the steward and manager had decided to add to the debt owed to the rich landowner by the farmers for his own take. You got that? So for the olive oil guy, it was 50, 100%, and for the and for the wheat guy, bread guy, it was 20%. Who knows why? Those are just the figures in the parable. And, and he does so so that he can gain from those tenant farmers some sense of forgiveness and grace. He forgives their debts, not all of them, but the debt they owed him. At least that's my take on it. And what's completely wacky is that the owner, the rich owner, that you would expect Jesus would be jumping on for having tenant farmers to begin with, because if they owed a thousand gallons of olive oil and 900 bushels of wheat, that's like years and years and years of labor, which means that they were continuing to add up in, by interest and by interest, much like in those old days, the coal miners could only shop at the company store and they could buy their goods uh, by paying back later and the interest would mount so that the coal miners could never get out of the relationship and never pay it back. They were indebted forever. Same true with tenant farmers in Jesus' day. Now we think that these, these economies in Jesus' time were first world, but they were not. They were more second world. They were, in a Jewish kind of way, the first real capitalist system. People, most people, had freedom to farm, to grow wheat, olives, to be carpenters and trades people. If you didn't have a job, they would put you in a big building project to, to find one. And, and most people gave according to the Torah's rule that 10% goes to the church or synagogue. You also participate in the holy days and other rituals of Ju Judaism to make sure that the poor people are taken care of. You don't harvest all your crops from the fields. You leave the edges full so that those who are poor can come and pick food for themselves, as well as those who might be strangers. So here we are. Tenant farmers relieved of some of their debt. And what's strange to me is that the manager, the steward, could arbitrarily decide how much that debt relief would be. And the landowner never knew it. Anita and I needed a plumber last week, and it's just a simple little job of replacing the dripping fixtures and faucets and a in a bathroom sink. So we called a company we'd used before. It's a big company. They have about 40 trucks. And I was told that it would cost $69 for them to come out there. And then they would make an estimate of what it would 
uh, take and how much it would cost. And we, if we chose to use them, which they could do the job uh, in, that, in that time of coming, then they would not charge the $69 service call. So said so to be there in two hours. And I think, wow, that's amazing, two hours. So they show up, two guys, great guys, really nice guys, and they go in and start looking around under the sink and, and he's shaking his head. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, this isn't gonna be good. And he comes up and says, I gotta tell you, you've got, you've got metal fixtures all underneath that. And if I put a wrench to this, it could easily break off and we'd be in real trouble. Um, so I need you to sign a disclaimer, uh, damage disclaimer. Uh, and, and I'm saying, well, what is, needs to be done? He says, well, we need to be very careful to pull all this out and put in PVC piping. But that's not that big a deal. I said, how much will that cost? So he pulls out his iPad and he starts punching buttons. No, 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 and he says, that'll be $550. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of gulped and said, um, what if it only takes an hour? It's $550. So I, you know, that sounds high to me. I, I, I love you guys, you're doing great, but I really feel like I need to get a second estimate. He goes, well, let me see what I can do. So he starts punching some more <laughs> buttons and he says, That'll be, okay, I can make, I can do this. I can make it $450. And I gotta tell you, that did not engender a lot of trust. <laughs> that the plumber himself could negotiate the price. And it left me thinking, is the extra 450 to 550 going in his pocket or what, you see? And so I thanked him for coming and said I'd get back to him, but I'm not gonna get back to him because I just don't trust that way of doing business. He should have given me the best price right out of the chute. He shouldn't have had the freedom to negotiate it. The manager is doing just that. The difference is the owner of the plumbing company understood that he was negotiating it while the owner of the farm did not. It does not engender trust. So when he, when he gets called in, he comes up with a scheme to save his you-know-what, and he cuts the bill in half and then 20%, and, and, and the manager is just overcome with a sense of awe and gratitude, and he commends the guy when he finds out about it, which is a complete reversal of what we would expect. And Jesus, instead of Jesus hammering the rich landowner with tenant farmers, he hammers, he, he hammers the manager and praises the rich landowner who commends the manager in this reversal. It's beyond, I mean, it's just, it's typical of a reversal of expectations in Jesus' parables. And if, and if that isn't confusing enough, he adds that the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than you are, talking to his disciples, than you are the people of the light. And then he continues, I tell you, which means listen up. Like this manager, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed in eternal dwellings. Seriously? I mean, it's, this is like, just bribe your friends with your money and then you'll be welcome in all kinds of places, even eternity. The hardest part about being wealthy, I've heard, 
is how hard it is to trust your friends, of whether they are your friend or your sycophant, whether they are around you because of your money or because of your Eunice. Everyone I've talked to in a place like that says to me that behind closed doors. And I can understand it. Is Jesus telling them to do it this way then? Give to your friends so that they will welcome, you will be welcomed. And I, maybe, uh, you can see me squirming up here because I really don't, I, I really don't know what this means. I don't know the answer to this parable, but maybe it is that the eternal dwellings are the goal. And what Jesus is talking about is the kingdom of God. That somehow giving to your friends and giving to those who owe you is paying off a debt. It's forgiving a debt. And maybe, maybe in as much as like this steward, he was able to forgive some of the debt. Maybe in, in our being able to forgive the debts that people owe us too, we discover what the eternal kingdom of God is like. I've got a lot of things in my life that need forgiving. I can promise you this. If I kept count, and I'm sure I do on some level, the people in my life have a whole lot more things that I need to forgive. If I kept count, and I do on some level, we all keep score. We all do. I'm just not going to invite her to my birthday party, Mom, because she didn't invite me to hers. Do you see how mean she was to me on Facebook that you know what? I'm not her friend anymore. I loaned that guy 50 bucks and he told me he'd pay me back, but it's now been three years, six months, two days, and 12 minutes and he hadn't paid me. No, we don't keep score. Apparently, Jesus understands that any kind of debt forgiven is good for finding our place in the kingdom of God. Any kind of debt forgiven. Sins? We better hope so. Which is why maybe Jesus adds, whoever can be trusted with little things can be trusted with big things. And whoever is untrustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust, uh, who will trust you with true riches? And maybe, I don't know, but maybe, maybe just what Jesus is trying to teach us is that living our quid pro quo scorekeeping kind of life and the way we hold people indebted to us for the little things, for reasons that in the end really don't amount to that much, means that we are going to miss what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Maybe which is why in Luke's version of the Lord's Supper, it says, forgive us our debts, not our trespasses. Could the temptation and the evil 
that we have to fight be about our holding on to the many debts that we are owed? The second reason I don't like this parable is because when Luke ends it with Jesus quoting, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and money. I don't like it because it is too personal. I know the pull and power that money has in my life, and I struggle with it. I struggle with me making a clear choice for God and Jesus or whether I'm spending most of my time and worry and anxiety and effort trying to make sure my money is okay. To manage it takes effort, and I know how much debt it exacts from me. And I don't like this because it convicts me. You know what I mean? The church struggles with this, too. We're going to enter into our stewardship year pretty soon. It's a little later than most of the churches I know, but I like it. It gives us a chance to get our feet on the ground some as we come back from the summer. And what the church does, you see, or, or tries to do is to, is to try to develop in our stewardship theme each year a way that you will move to, to be more giving, more, more free in giving, to the church and other places that, in fact, that your giving will increase from the, what was it, 1.6% average or something we played out, is, is that right? Uh, in, in the survey, that's what we figured out was the average, overall average of 1.6% of giving for each congregation member. That does not mean everybody gives that amount or less, that's just how it plays out. That you will move up a little bit, but I don't like it because it implies, especially when the preacher is trying to talk you into this, it implies that the preacher's own self-interest doesn't matter. And I can promise you the preacher's self-interest matters because the preacher's salary, as is the salary of the rest of the staff, is dependent on the amount of money you give to the church. And we as a church need to be clear about that, which is why in this church, it is the elders who lead the program and our committees who run the program, not your preachers who call for it. And what sets us apart as a Presbyterian church is that the pastor is not the charismatic one-person leader who tells everybody what they need to do and then decides how the money is going to be used. Only decisions are made through process and through a session meeting and a community gathered together. You make those decisions, and so if it goes wrong, this is the beauty. Blame them. <laughs> so true stewardship, I think, looks like managing our lives and faith and hope grounded in the eternal dwelling of God, and then what follows will be an act of gratitude. And it takes work. There's a story of the Dalai Lama being invited to a little town in India because they had a 25-year-old monk, Buddhist monk, who lived in the cave, never exited the cave. They would bring his meals to him, and he was in meditation for 25 straight years. 
And when the monk heard that the Dalai Lama was coming, he said, I'll come out of my cave. I must, I must meet His Holiness. And so they did. They came together, and, and the, the monk fell to his knees, and Dalai Lama picked him up. And, and, and the monk says, Your Holiness, I've been meditating for 25 years, but I haven't yet found enlightenment. Can you help me know what I'm supposed to do next? And the Dalai Lama, in great love, embraced him and said, uh, Brother, um, my suggestion is if you want to find enlightenment, that you must leave the cave, come out into the people, and do something for them. It takes work. You know, I had this friend in Birmingham, and I asked him if I could use his name, by the way. I've told this to, a, to another friend of mine recently. His name is Miller Gorey. Miller Gorey is the CEO and, and starting owner of Brassville Gorey Construction Company. And if you're in business, you know that that's a really well-known name. They are an honorable business because Miller Gorey is an honorable person. He started his business on a handshake. He was trustworthy, and every developer I've ever known says that they would rather use Miller Gorey to build their developments than anybody else because of that trustworthiness. So Miller and I got to be friends when I was in Birmingham at Independent Presbyterian Church, doing there what I'm doing here. Miller's a billionaire, but he, of course he'd never admit it. And, and Miller is hugely generous in ways nobody knows about. So when we were walking around, I got to know Miller, and while we didn't see eye to eye on all things political, we grew to love each other desperately. We, we loved each other because I, I saw in him something I needed to be. And he saw in me something he needed to be. And the influence of both of us helped us become more than we were. And near the end of our walks, we would walk two or three times a week uh, for, I don't know, an hour. He's 86 years old. We would talk. And at the end of it, I said, Miller, um, you're 86. I don't know how many years you got left. Not many, he would say. Um, I said, I know you're a humble uh, you got to do something to be humble. I ain't done nothing, he'd say. Uh, tell me, what legacy do you want to leave? Shakes his head. I want to leave it so that when I'm gone, a thousand jobs will be continued in Birmingham, Alabama because of the work we've done. A thousand jobs. You talk about paying off a debt He's paying it off to the city. He's paying it off to his employees who are fairly and well paid and well cared for. That's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This, this week, most of us will not attend the queen's funeral. You probably haven't been invited. You can watch it on television. Most of us will not save a person's life. Most of us will not write a book or manage or a war or be burned at the stake as a heretic. Mostly we will go through each day pretty much doing the little stuff. The chance to give an ounce or two of forgiveness to somebody, the chance to reach out a hand and give them a hand up, the, the chance to teach a Sunday school class or share a meal or, or, or to hold a child. 
and to, and to give up some of those debts that we hold in our back pockets. Jesus said, whoever is faithful in very little is faithful in much. So may it be for us. Amen.